In Isaiah 6, when the prophet saw God in all of his holiness and heard the Lord ask the question, whom shall we send and who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And that needs to be the attitude of each and every uh, one of us. Well, this morning we're continuing our series in 2 Thessalonians, so I encourage you to take your copy of the Scripture, uh, whether that's your Bible, a pew Bible, or your electronic device, and join me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, many of you already this morning have asked me how I am doing, and so to save from answering that question about 150 more times after the service. When asked about how I'm doing, my wife says to people, he's still stoned, but he's not in pain. So, so I still have the stone, but I am not in pain. So I appreciate your prayers and would ask you to continue to pray for me. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 We're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 12. Back in 2015, I served as the foreman on a jury in a murder trial in Summit County. The defendant was accused of multiple uh, charges. If I remember correctly, there were somewhere between 16 and 18 different charges. We found the defendant guilty of all of the charges except one. On one charge, we found him not guilty, and the reason we found him not guilty is we all agreed the prosecution had presented zero evidence to prove that one charge. We all know what evidence is. It's the truth, it's the facts that bring us to conclusions. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul says in verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So this morning we're going to be talking about God's righteous judgment. And we're going to be talking about the evidence for God righteously judging. Now, many people have a problem with a God who is a judge. They have a problem with a God who is going to inflict judgment upon individuals. A God that we'll see in the passage who takes vengeance. They say, how can that God exist and be a God of love? How can he love people and at the same time inflict judgment and punishment eternally upon those who reject him? And many times people wrestle with how that can be so. So the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of believers who are afflicted, a group of believers who are persecuted. And he is going to present to them the evidence of how God is righteous in his judgment. 
So as we work our way through the passage, we're going to see two different groups of people in the passage. And these two groups of people exist today as well. All of mankind living on the face of the earth today can be divided into two different groups. We have those who are believers, those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul will be addressing them in this book because they are the ones who make up the church. And in the local church here in Thessalonica, there are believers there. It is made up of the believers, the called out ones. And even so today, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've put your faith and trust in him for your salvation, you are a believer, you are a part of the universal church, you are saved. That's one group of individuals. We have another group of individuals who are unbelievers. They have not trusted in Christ as their Savior. They are condemned in their sins. You know, John in chapter 3 tells us, if you haven't believed in Jesus, you are condemned already. So you're either a believer, you've put your trust in Christ, or you haven't put your trust in Christ, and you are in that category of an unbeliever. Believers have passed from death unto life. Unbelievers are still spiritually dead and need to be quickened and made alive. So two different groups. And as the Apostle Paul presents his evidence for the righteous judgment of God, he's going to present evidence for those who are believers, and he's going to present evidence regarding unbelievers. Well, what's the first piece of evidence that he presents? Look at verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So for believers, the first piece of evidence is that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, when I read that, my first reaction was to take kind of a, a step back and ask myself the question, am I worthy to be a part of the kingdom of God? When I examine my life and nobody knows me better than I know me, I would very strongly hesitate to say, I am worthy of the kingdom of God. There are things that I know about me, which I'm not going to share with all of you this morning, just as all of you are not going to share with me all the things that you know about yourself. But I look at that and say, do I really consider myself worthy to be a part of the kingdom of God? But the reality is, the words that are used here do not mean that we are considered worthy because of what we do, but it actually means to be declared worthy as in a judicial decree. 
The judge says, you're innocent. So then, you are innocent. You're not guilty. And we as believers, and the believers in Thessalonica, have been declared by God to be not guilty because of what Christ has done for us. So I am considered worthy, and if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are considered to be worthy of the kingdom of God, not based on what you've done, but based on what Christ has done for you. And a righteous God has said, we are worthy of the kingdom of God. Don't you love that truth? Aren't you glad it's not based on you? but it's based on what God has done for us. So we're considered worthy of the kingdom. And then he goes on and says this, of which, into verse 5, you are also suffering. He talks to the Thessalonians there and he says, uh, part of the proof of the evidence of God's righteous judgment is the fact that you are suffering. You are being suffering persecuted for your faith in Christ. Now this morning we've already heard uh, in the video that was shared with us on this international day of prayer for the persecuted church, we've heard from one of our missionaries, uh, Brother Benny, and how those in, in Asia are suffering for putting their faith in trust. In Jesus. As I think of even the individuals that we support as a church, of those around the world who are suffering, I think of the Afghan refugees that had to leave their country and flee to another country to be safe because they were being persecuted and going to be put to death. And unfortunately, for some of those that they were not able to get out of the country, martyrdom became a reality for them. They were put to death. So once again, I thank you as a church for your giving that helped us to to get over 1,400 people out of that country. But they were suffering persecution. I, I think of what is going on in northern India today. I think about the Chinese church planters and oh how much uh, Pastor Bruce and I hope that not this next year but in 2023 we'll be able to go over and be with them again and to train them. But I think of all that they go through in persecution as they are persecuted in China merely for being Christians and gathering together to worship God. And I think of our brothers and sisters that we support and we've ministered with in Myanmar and the persecution that they are suffering and they are facing. They are suffering. The Apostle Paul says, God's judgment, the evidence for his righteous judgment, is because of the suffering of those who follow him. 
He goes on and he says this in verse 6. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Another argument for God's justice is he is going to repay affliction on those who are afflicting the church. This is that feeling that we all have. Don't you just long for justice sometimes? Don't you just long and and see someone who's abusing somebody else and just want judgment? You just root for someone who has has been the underdog and beat up by others? And, And we often show that, you know, it's a story you've probably all heard of the truck driver who stops in the diner and there's a motorcycle gang in the diner. And he orders his meals, and he's sitting there, and they come over and they take his drink, and they pour it out on the floor. And then they come over and they take his meal, and they eat it. And he doesn't say a word to them. He gets up, he leaves his tip, he gets up, he pays the cashier, and he leaves. And the motorcycle gang, one of the members says to the waitress, he surely wasn't much of a man, was he? And she says, well, I can't say anything about this, but I know he's not much of a driver because he just ran over a lot of motorcycles out there in the parking lot. (laughs) Honestly, we enjoy that story, don't we? And we relate to it because we long for justice. God is going to repay those who afflict others with affliction. He goes on and he says in verse 7, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. The evidence of God's righteous judgment is this. You may be afflicted, you may be suffering, but the days coming... When God is going to grant relief to that. Now, sometimes we see some of that relief in this lifetime. You know, I think of the the Indian pastors who were arrested. At least they're out of jail on bail right now. God has granted some relief to them. But that ultimate relief is not coming until the future. And much of the book of 2 Thessalonians is going to be focused on things in the future. We'll see that especially next week when we move into chapter 2. Because he goes, Paul goes on and says in verse 7, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There's coming a day Jesus is coming back to this earth. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom. That day is coming, and then there will be perfect justice and perfect judgment upon this earth. And so those who are afflicted, the day is coming. We will receive full relief from the Lord. And Paul says that will not only be true for the Thessalonians, but Paul says to us as well, it will be true uh, for us. In verse 8, it says, the end of verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for the unbelievers, vengeance will be inflicted upon God. Now we struggle with that as well. Because when we get vengeance or seek vengeance, we are vindictive in what we are striving to do. For us, vengeance often carries that thing, we're going to get back at you because you did this to me. The word that's used for vengeance here is a word that's tied to the concept of justice. And it really means when it says that God inflicts vengeance upon them, that God is inflicting pure, total judgment upon them. Pure, total justice upon them. It's not God is being vindictive toward them. God is bringing about complete and total justice. And so part of the evidence of God's righteous justice is that he inflicts that total and complete justice. Next, he goes on and he says this. He says, inflicting on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now let's pause there for a moment. That's upon those who are the unbelievers, those who are lost. Because those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's now con no condemnation for us. We have been forgiven. Our sins have been paid for by Christ's death upon the cross. But for those who reject Christ, those who do not believe in him, he says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now, we don't like the sound of that, do we? That just because someone is not a Christian, is not a follower of Christ, that they will endure eternal destruction. That has caused some people to focus on the word destruction. The eternal destruction, they would say. Well, destruction means annihilation. They will be annihilated for all of eternity. Or they will say, you know what, eternal doesn't really mean eternal. Uh, we need to redefine that word eternal so that eternal has a limited set of time, and it goes on for a long, long time, but it's not an unending period of time. Here's the problem with that view. Look, I wish I could believe that. Not a sadist. Take no joy whatsoever in the thought of those who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ enduring eternal destruction. If you rejoice in that thought, can I say to you there's something wrong with you? But our problem is this. The same word that is used in Matthew, chapter 25, verse 41, where it says, as the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, 
is also used in Matthew 25, verse 46, where it says this. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same word used in both occasions. So if you're going to say the word eternal doesn't mean unending for those who are facing the judgment of God, then you must also conclude that the life that we will have with Christ in the future, which is described by the same word, will not be unending either. The vengeance, perfect justice, that God carries out is for eternity. And it's described as eternal judgment, eternal destruction. And then we're told it is, end of verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will be separated from God. For all eternity. Now he switches back to the believers when he says this in verse 10. When he comes on that day, once again referring to the coming of Christ in the future, to be glorified in his saints. Christ will be glorified in his saints. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are called in the New Testament a saint. Turn to the person next to you and call him a saint. (laughs) Now, as, as, as long as they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that's true of them. We don't need a a church meeting to declare people to be saints and say you must meet certain standards in order to be declared a saint. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, you're one of his children, you're a saint. Can I get an amen on that anywhere here? Amen. (laughs) Jesus is then glorified in us, in his saints. And it says, and to be marveled at. Marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To be marveled at. I won't have you do it, but now you could look at the person and say, you're a saint? (laughs) But we, we marvel at that. And you know, as we, <laughs> as we, as a church, hear the testimonies of members of this body, don't we at times just marvel and say, look what God has done. How could God do that? How did God intervene in those circumstances that he, cha- he really changed that person? I think Paul never lost the thought of that because Paul knows what, how he was changed and how people had to be marveling at the fact Paul, the persecutor of the church, is the major proponent of the church. Really? How can something like that 
happen. That would be like a revival breaking in Washington, D.C., and everybody getting saved, and all the politicians could only, and all the politicians could only speak truth. Would we marvel at something like that? But you know, God's capable of doing that. God is still capable of changing people. And see, what everyone is marveling at is not how good we are, but what God has done because the glory all goes to Christ. The glory is all his. At this point, Paul can't help but break out in a prayer. Have you noticed when Paul be writing, he's, he's going along and then suddenly he just breaks out into a prayer. That should be true in our lives too. Look at this, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. We ought to always be praying for one another. We need to make it a part of our life. I hope you find, as I do, there are many times that I'm finding myself just being impressed with what God has done for me and how he has blessed me and just praying a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, God. Thank you for all you've given to me. Thank you, God. As I hear this report this morning from Brother Benny, thank you, God, that I was privileged to be born in America. Thank you, God, for the blessings that you've poured upon me. I thank God that he called me to be the pastor of this church. I thank God for each of you as I look out. Believers in Christ. He goes on and says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. What, what Paul is saying now is, okay, since God has declared you worthy, now act like you're worthy. He's called you his children, now act like his children. I, I remember the the, the story, some of you, uh, maybe many of you in this service will uh, remember the baseball manager, Tommy Lasorda. He used to give his players nicknames. And he gave a nickname to Oral Hershiser. He called him the Bulldog. And the reason he called him that is he felt he was too timid on the mound. And I remember at the end of his career when Hershiser was pitching for the Indians in the World Series, which they lost, of course. <laughs> hey, all you Indians fans, we have one thing. The Indians will never again not win the World Series. Because they're no longer the Indians. So, okay, I won't dwell on that. All right, but... When they were playing the Atlanta Braves, Tommy Lasorda called Hershiser before he pitched one of the games in the World Series, and he said to him, it's time for you to act like the bulldog out on the mountain. Paul is saying, you've been counted worthy, now live worthy. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. God wants us to live good lives. God wants us to do good to others. Let's pray for one another that we will do that. And every work of faith by his power. God wants us to live by faith. Not by sight, but trusting him. You can trust 
God. The Thessalonians were living in troubling times. We are living in troubling times. But we can trust our God. Don't put your hope in the Democrats. Don't put your hope in the Republicans. Put your hope in God. He's the only one who will not fail us and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. See, that's what it's all about, bringing glory to our God. So quickly, in conclusion, let me ask two questions. First of all, which category are you in this morning? Are you in the category of the believer or are you in the category of the unbeliever? If you have not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you, I urge you, do not leave this place today without believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be here after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, put your trust in him. And then... For all of us who've put our faith and trust in Jesus, he has counted us as worthy. So let's live our lives as those who are worthy of our calling. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, that we might follow you and serve you Help us, Lord, that we might be faithful day in and day out. Help us to live lives that will bring glory to you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.